0: I'm going to open us in prayer, and then we'll get started this morning. Father, thank you so much for uh, your word, for your spirit that indwells us, lives in us, uh, and who is at work in us as we open up your word and we consider the truth that we find there. And so we pray that we would, uh, we would come to your word uh, open to what it is that you have revealed there. That your spirit would lead us into the truth. That finding the truth, we would not be uh, proud, Father, but that we would be humbled by it. uh, That we would come to the the fullest possible realization of our identity in Christ as your people. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so we are going to spend a few weeks, not sure yet how many it's going to be, uh, taking up really this question of... Uh, The modern nation state of Israel established in 1948, is that the fulfillment of prophecy? Uh, Is the nation state of Israel today uh, God's people? And so uh, it is not a simple question. Uh, What we find in scripture requires us to pay close attention Uh, And not only that, but uh, I would go so far as to say that the answer to those questions is not a simple yes or no. But we're going to have to make some distinctions. They're distinctions that Scripture itself makes, and so we believe they're wise distinctions. We're going to make a distinction, for example, between the Jewish people as an ethnic group and the nation of Israel as a political entity. What we're going to do in whatever time we spend together on this in the next few weeks is not a a class in geopolitics. Uh, It's going to be impossible for us not to touch on it briefly. uh, But in as much as I have no interest in telling you to vote for in elections, I have no interest in telling you uh, precisely how you should be thinking about the current conflict. It's a geopolitical conflict. I have no expertise in geopolitics. I have an opinion, just like all of you have, right? Uh, Hopefully, our opinion is shaped by a right understanding of Scripture uh, and not a wrong understanding of Scripture. When it comes to the question of how we should be thinking about the current conflict and about the problem that has been in place for decades, uh, we actually, most of us as evangelicals, are thinking of it, we believe, Biblically. What I mean by that is very few evangelicals come to this question and say to themselves, Scripture has nothing to say about this. The question is, are we coming to the question with a right understanding of what Scripture has to tell us about it? Right. And so uh, this current conflict in particular raises these questions perhaps in a new way. Uh, in a, uh, a more urgent way, uh, and modern American views of the situation, especially among evangelicals, have been heavily influenced by a particular interpretation of Scripture. Uh, that interpretation has a name, it's called dispensationalism, and I'm not going to dive into that now, but we will before we're done. We're going to have to sit down and carefully unpack dispensationalism and what it teaches, and and ask, is that what scripture says? Uh, And then I don't want to just try and take away that particular understanding. If that happens to be your understanding, I want to provide you with a better understanding. Uh, And and we're going to to have to go into God's word to do that. It's not going to be merely my opinion. If you're not in the habit of bringing your Bible to church, please do bring it with you. We're going to be uh, in it quite a bit as we go through this study. I, again, I don't want to uh, to simply give you a, a theological framework. Uh, no matter how much that framework is built upon God's Word, I don't want to assume that. I want to be able to show you where it is in God's Word and why it is from God's Word that we believe that this is what it says. Uh, and so... Um, this Sunday School series is intended to bring us to scripture, to ask and answer the questions, these sort of thesis questions, who is the modern nation state of Israel, how should we be thinking about them uh, according to God's word, and is, is there, are they Israel, are they the Israel of God, and if not, who is? And so in doing so, I hope uh, we'll, we'll uh, find a more biblical way to think about current events, and more importantly, I hope you'll come to recognize even more deeply your true identity as one who is in Christ. So that's why we're doing this, and uh, I'm actually excited about it. Uh, I'm not not at all concerned about uh, dipping our toe into something that can be difficult and controversial. I think it's very, very important. The question of who is Israel uh, is a question that goes to the very root of Our identity. If we get this wrong, you you may not realize this, but if we get this wrong, we misunderstand all of the promises of God. All of the promises of God are made to Abraham and his offspring, and no one else. That's not the Old Testament, that's the entire Bible. If you are not in Abraham, if you are not a child, a son, a daughter of Abraham, promises are not for you. That's what's at stake as we come to this question. And it's why uh, dispensationalism, we'll talk about it again, we'll talk about it more in a little bit, but uh, it's, it's why dispensationalism, having become the most prominent view held by evangelicals, and, and having been the most prominent view since about the middle of the 20th century, it's why we still are fighting it and pushing back on it and teaching about it and teaching against it. Because it it doesn't just get some peripheral things wrong. What it gets wrong strikes at the very heart of what God has revealed about himself and what he's doing in the world. And so I'm going to back all that up as we go. Before I get started, though, um, some important caveats. And this is where this is the most dangerous part of the entire series right here, okay? Um, there's, there's two ways, potentially, that I'm going to upset you over the next few weeks. One is because the view of Israel that I describe, that I uh, present and defend from God's Word, is so very different than what most evangelicals believe. Uh, that uh, you're you're going to be per- potentially upset by that view, right? Um, and that's okay. That's okay. Uh, i've I've been very upset before when I was presented with views that I didn't agree with as well. Even if those views turned out to be correct later. I, I came to an understanding later that they were correct. I want you to understand it is not my intention to upset. Now, I want to present the truth, I want to do it. Uh, with confidence, because I am confident in it, but I want to do it with humility as well. Uh, Those of you who have been in Sunday school with me before, you know I'm very happy to answer questions. Uh, And we don't have to wait till the end of the class. If you have a question, raise your hand. For some reason, if you're over here, I'm not likely to see it. So somebody's got a point. I don't know why I missed the hands over here, but uh, somebody yell and let me know there's a hand I'm missing. Uh, I'm happy to stop right in the middle of whatever I'm doing and answer questions. There are, uh, there are a lot of fundamental uh, aspects of this discussion that I'm going to try to unpack. I, I, I don't want to gloss over something and take for granted that everybody knows and understands it. But I've been doing this for a very long time, and it's possible I might even have lost touch a little bit with what people don't know, right? Uh, and so I've also been ministering in, in, out of this belief for a very long time. And so I'm going to try not to assume that these things are all known and understood by everybody. But if I, if I say something and you're like, I have no idea what he's talking about, you're probably not the only one. Would you raise your hand and ask me to pause and explain it? And I'll be happy to do that. The, uh, the other way I might upset you, And this is completely unintentional. You should not be upset because if you are, you're hearing something I'm not saying. Uh, What Hamas has done is wicked. It is absolutely wicked. And I do not have to be pro-Israel or a dispensationalist uh, or hold any particular political view to absolutely, with all boldness, say that aloud, not only here with all of you sitting and listening, but recorded, and it's going online, what Hamas has done is absolutely wicked. And I'll go further. The existence of Hamas in the world is a blight on humanity. Their published reason for existing is genocide. And I don't care that that's genocide against the Jews Genocide against anyone is absolute wickedness. I don't have to be a dispensationalist to be worked up about this, right? I want you to hear me say that with absolute clarity. And the reason I need to say that so clearly is because what I'm going to end up telling you over the the course of this study is that the modern nation state of Israel is not the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And I don't want you to hear me saying that and because of the the politically charged nature of our culture, begin to say to yourself, Oh, Matt's pro-Palestinian. Matt's not a supporter of Israel. The question of whether I'm pro-this or anti-that has very little to do with my understanding of their identity. They are a modern nation state. They have the right to defend themselves. In the course of defending themselves, there will be collateral damage, but they have every bit as much responsibility as every other nation state in the world today to minimize that damage in as much as they are able, and to make every effort in the execution of their defense not to commit atrocities, not to needlessly, carelessly kill and wound those who are not combatants. Right, So I would be delighted if at the end of this series you have no idea where I stand on the geopolitical issue because it's not the point. But I want you to hear me say clearly that I am absolutely uh, shocked and sickened by what Hamas has done. And as it becomes evident, if it is to become evident, that Israel has committed atrocities in the execution of their defense, I am as sickened by that as I am by what Hamas has done to them. Justice is justice, and God himself calls Israel to account in the Old Testament, when when there is absolutely no question that they are his people in the world, God himself calls Israel to account for their lack of justice. And so it is not anti-Israel for me to say aloud, Israel is responsible to execute their defense with justice. Okay? That's as geopolitical as I'm going to get. The rest of this is about eternal truth and about our identity in Christ. So, let me pause. Said, said some really hard things. Any questions so far? Questions about where we're going? Why we're here? I don't mean existentially why we're here. I'm kind of hoping all of our ministry is seeking to answer that question over time. Okay. Well, that said, uh, we've got to establish some, some basics, some foundations here. Uh, and so uh, the, the first thing that I want to do, and I've done this before, and you may think, why are we doing this? But it's a context that you need. I want to walk through Old Testament history. We're going to do it pretty quickly, uh, pretty basically, but you need to have the big picture. Okay. Uh, and we're going to kind of do it by book. Uh, So when we open up Genesis, and you've seen this in the, the series that we're in now, Genesis 1 through 3 tells us the story of God creating all things and establishing a covenant with Adam in the garden that perfect obedience will lead to eternal life and any rebellion will lead to death. And that Adam is doing this, we find out, as a representative for all of his offspring. Adam, as you know, sins. Genesis 3, God comes and pronounces a curse uh, but he also, in the midst of pronouncing that curse, announces deliverance. Genesis 3.15. Uh, Genesis 3, from there throughout the rest of Scripture, God is progressively revealing his work of redeeming us from that sin and guilt that belongs to us. And it's a just guilt, right? We, we are genuinely guilty not only because Adam did that as our representative, but because we show ourselves to be his sons and daughters by sinning. Right? We, we were represented by him. We have become sinners, and we sin because that's who we are. God is delivering us from that sin and guilt and restoring us not only to a position of innocence, but, but, but positive righteousness by the finished work of Jesus Christ. So when we come out of that Genesis 3 and the curse and the, the first uh, pronouncement of the gospel and deliverance, we're going to see God begin to unpack this in redemptive history. So that as we, we go on into Genesis through uh, the flood narrative and Babel, we come to the, what we call the, the patriarchs. To Abraham, which is where we are in our sermon series. And God comes to Abraham and he establishes a covenant with Abraham. And in that covenant, he makes promises. That's what a covenant is. God comes to Abraham and he makes promises to Abraham. Unlike the covenant he made with Adam, where Adam was responsible to fulfill the obligations of that covenant. When God makes a covenant with Abraham... God promises to fulfill all of the stipulations of that covenant himself. That's what we we see when Abraham and God ought to walk through all of those pieces together in Genesis 15. All the animals are cut in half and laid across from one another. They should walk through together because that's actually an ancient Near Eastern form of treaty. Uh, We know about this from extra biblical literature. They ought to walk through together as the two parties to the covenant, but instead God places Abraham into a deep sleep and he himself goes through the pieces. In other words, he's promising that he will be responsible for both parties' stipulations in that covenant so that if it's broken, he will fulfill those covenant obligations. That's Genesis 15. So... uh, in, uh, in the unfolding story from there, we have Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And as we come to the end of Genesis, because of famine, they've all left the promised land and they're in Egypt together where there's food. And when you open up Exodus in the next book of the Bible, we've skipped forward hundreds of years and the people of Israel have thrived in Egypt and become a great people in Egypt. And out of fear of them, they've been subjugated by the, the Pharaoh, the current Pharaoh, as we begin to read in Exodus. And God begins to raise up a deliverer for them from that slavery, Moses. Uh, and we have the, uh, the entire narrative there of Moses' birth and him being called by God, and, uh, and going back to, Iz- to uh, Egypt to deliver the people through the plagues, uh, and the final plague being the, the Passover. Uh, The people are delivered, and they begin that exodus. They're on their way to the promised land. Uh, They go out into the Sinai, uh, into that area there around on the the other side of the Red Sea. And uh, and there at Mount Sinai, they receive the law of God. And God establishes them uh, in a formal way as a people, his people. Moses is the leader, and a covenant is established with them, what we call the Mosaic Covenant because Moses is the one who administers it. Uh, They then go from there to the promised land and have the opportunity, according to God's promise, to go into the promised land, but they refuse. And refusing, God says that entire generation, everyone 20 and older, is going to die in the wilderness. So they wander. If you are familiar with the wilderness wandering of the people during the Exodus, and uh, you've, you've imagined that they were somehow lost and weren't sure what direction to go, that's not the case. They weren't lost. They knew exactly how to get back to Egypt. They knew exactly how to go towards the promised land. But God had commanded them to remain, and they wander. At the end of their wandering, after that generation has died, God tells them it's time to go into the promised land. And as they come up to the edge of the promised land, Moses, because of an earlier sin that he had committed, is allowed to see the land but not enter it. And he dies and God takes him up. Joshua becomes the leader. And in the book of Joshua, so all of that's happening in Exodus through Deuteronomy, in the book of Joshua we read of the people of Israel crossing the Jordan, going into the promised land and conquering the peoples who were in the promised land. And having conquered them, they begin to live in the promised land, but there's no king. And so God raises up judges uh, as occasion requires. And the people uh, are, are disobedient to God, and they come under judgment, and then they cry out, and then God raises up a judge who delivers them. Yes. People whom the Israelites cast out of the promised land thousands of years ago? Is that- so I, I want to be careful because I, I, I don't really know the mind of the Palestinian. Uh, my, I, I believe it's possible, certainly. Um, Palestine and Palestinian is actually just the, the word Philistine. You can hear the, the uh, resemblance, right? Philistine, Palestine. Right, uh, and so uh, my understanding is that culturally and ethnically, as a people, they do see themselves as the descendants of those who have been in the land uh, ever since. Um, the genetic reality is there's probably been a lot of, you know, interracial mixing, um, and so how how uh, true that is genetically, I don't know, but as an identity, I, I do think that that's how they see themselves. Yes. Other questions? Okay, so Joshua, under Joshua they conquer. There's a series of judges we read about in the book of Judges. Uh, and then as we come out of the book of Judges, and of course you've got the, the story of Ruth, which takes place during the period of the Judges. As you come out of the, the period of the Judges, 1 Samuel. Samuel is one of the judges. He's, he's really the last judge, although he will make his children judges as well. But it's in the life of Samuel that we begin to see a kingdom established. The people cry out for a king and God gives them Saul. Uh, Saul is a disaster, not because God chose poorly. God intentionally chose who he chose for the reasons he chose him. Uh, But then after Saul, we have David. Uh, And David is the one that God promises will have a descendant who sits on the throne forever. All along, God has been telling us more and more about this Messiah, this offspring of Eve, who is going to come to deliver his people. We're learning more and more about this person. Before we ever get out of Genesis, we're going to find out that this person's from the tribe of Judah, that he's going to be a king, that he's going to reign forever. And as we come to Samuel and David, we find out that it's David's line in which that promise is going to be kept. David is king over the 12 tribes. He dies and his son Solomon becomes king. Solomon reigns over the 12 tribes, uh, but because of his sin, when Solomon dies, God divides the kingdom. Ten tribes uh, rebel against Solomon's offspring, Rehoboam, and they follow instead another man as king, Jeroboam. And that northern ten tribes under Jeroboam, from that point on, is known as Israel. That's the, the name most often used to describe that entity. Uh, The two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin, are known as Judah, and David's offspring will rule in an unbroken line on the throne of that southern kingdom, Judah, uh, all the way up until the Babylonians defeat them and cart them off into captivity. They'll keep track of that line, that familial line, Uh, and offspring of David will, when they are allowed to come back to the land, you can read about it under Ezra and Nehemiah, Uh, when they come back to the land, it's it's an offspring of David who will be a sort of governor and have a leadership role to play, but there will be, in the Old Testament, the people of Israel will never again be sovereign over their land. Uh, Between the Old and New Testaments, there's a brief period of sovereignty, Uh, that you can read about in uh, the Roman Catholic Bible, in those extra books that they put between the Old and New Testament. There's some history books in there called Maccabees, and you can read about the Maccabees and how they revolted and gained independence, Uh, but it's a short-lived independence. It's long gone by the time we get to the New Testament, which uh, when the Old Testament ends, when God stops speaking to his people, when there is what God himself refers to in the prophets as a famine of the word, uh that, that lasts for about four hundred years. So that's the time that's elapsed when you when you read the last verse of Malachi and you open up Matthew one, it's been four hundred years. Uh and so in that four hundred years, yes. I am not sure if you the statement you made this before that a phenomenon of the word. Was there a passage that was that's referring to that period between Malachi and the New Testament? Yes. Um, And the exact verse escapes me. Maybe somebody knows it off the top of their head. But yes, the the Old Testament, it might even be Malachi, uh, says that because of their sin and their rebellion, their refusal to do what they have been told is right, there will be a famine of the Word. Yes. Mm -hmm. And if uh, there's lots of people flipping through their Bibles, go for it. Yes, Will. Yeah, it's, it's fairly reliable. Yeah, yeah. those books that the Roman Catholics put in their Bible between the Old and New Testament uh, are not inerrant. They are not inspired by God. But there's lots of good books in the world that aren't inerrant or inspired by God, right? They still contain some truth. What we're not going to do is give them the authority of Scripture. But that doesn't mean that they're not useful. And Maccabees is, is, is really history. Uh, and by and large, it records the history faithfully. So yeah. Amos eight eleven. Amos no, no, go ahead. it says, Behold the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Yeah. That was the only thing that came my search. No, that's it. Joseph. That is a rabbit hole. So that's like a whole Sunday School series on what we call Canon, right? How did we get the Bible? Um, and so the, the short answer I'll give you is that one of the, the key elements uh, that was at play in the establishment of scripture was that, uh, that the entire church at the time, that this is in the first few centuries, recognized uh, these works as biblical. They recognized them as, as coming from God, uh, often because the author was an apostle and had that authority, uh, or because the content was consistent with the apostolic teaching and the rest of scripture. Uh, and so these books that are referred to as the apocryphal books uh, are, uh, are books that the church used, but never gave full authority to, And uh, and in fact, no no, uh, council of the church ever said these books are are scripture. Uh, The church never made any formal statement in any way, uh, giving full canonical authority to these books. But the church did recognize their usefulness. And so the church used them, though they did not give them the status of scripture. Uh, There's no formal statement on these books and their authority until the Reformation, at which point the Reformers drew a bright line and said these books are inspired and authoritative and have always been accepted by the Church in history as inspired and authoritative. These books have never been accepted, and so we we reject them as Scripture, right? Uh, The Roman Catholic Church in the Counter-Reformation for the first time said, oh yes, they are scripture, right? Their response to the Reformation was to affirm the biblical scriptural inspired status of those books. Uh, and that's been a, a significant distinction between Roman Catholic and evangelical ever since, right? Okay, anything else before we continue? Yes. Yeah. So the question, and if I'm, if I, the way I state it isn't what you're asking. Please correct me. But the question is, is the modern nation of Israel, particularly as they they go about defending themselves right now, uh, are they taking cues from the command that God gave in the Old Testament as Israel went into the land under Joshua? God God told them to to kill everyone in the land. Are they taking their cues from that? Uh, and I I would. My, my suspicion is they are not, uh, though they might be happy to use that, right, uh, as a polemical you know, response, a defense. Um, the fact is that the overwhelming majority uh, of those in power in the modern nation state of Israel are socialists and atheists. Uh, they are not religious Jews. And so, uh, again, it might be a very convenient thing for them to, to say to one another, but, uh, but those in power who are making these decisions give no, no particular value to this as being an authoritative example or command. So, yeah. 85% of Israel is secular. Uh, it's a misunderstanding that most Americans have that they think that you know, they're religious They're not. Even to underline that, seeing anything in the media and I'm tracking this very closely where they make that I mean they don't even come close to using that there it's all a uh, hangover it, that sounds derogatory it's all uh, a continued uh, injury from the Holocaust and they base their their freedom to respond as necessary based on that so it's really quite safe. And from a geopolitical perspective, they've been failed over and over again. Uh, you know, America has, when it suits us, uh, been a friend. But, uh, but the vast majority of the world not only failed them in the Holocaust, but has continued to fail them ever since. There's a, a very strong sense of nobody's going to take care of us but us. If we don't take care of us, then we will be extinguished. And you say, well, that's dramatic, except that Hamas has as their stated purpose the the absolute genocide of all Jews from the world. And they will say it out loud. This is not a secret. It's not an argument. They don't dispute it. They will proudly tell you this is why they exist and that they will exist until they accomplish it. And they live not, not near Israel. They are there. They are right there. Right there. Uh, if you've got a, a map in your Bible in the back, turn back to that map, and really it, it should be just about any of the maps that has Israel, Palestine, and look at Gaza. It's on the coast at the southern end. Okay, That's Gaza. It, it existed in David's time in the Old Testament. It exists today. It's the same city. Uh, that's where this is happening. It's right up in the middle of their, their nation, their land. So, uh, so the idea that they've got, you know, this, this very strong sense of we, we're going to defend ourselves and we're definitely not going to be told by the people who have failed us over and over and over again how to defend ourselves, right? Okay, so we come to the New Testament. The New Testament is Christ. He's the, he's the fulfillment. All of the anticipation, yes, Mm-hmm. Well, military um, sites like command centers, rocket sites. I think that uh, one explosion over a hospital, located in Gaza, was actually caused by one of their rockets misfiring in the mm-hmm. department department. Um, And as we've so Israel is kind of in a tough spot to where more or less it's in it, on an unavoidable well, to you, um, you know, to at least prevent some civilian casualties. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. whether willing or not, they're, since they're Muslim primarily, as far as like, religiously, they're concerned. Um, civilians dying would just be considered martyrs. Yeah, and I, I, I don't mean to... I, I'm not, by nature, an extreme skeptic. I might be a skeptic, but I'm not an extreme skeptic. Uh, on the geopolitical, I would just encourage you not to believe anything you read in the press. Like, literally all the numbers we're getting from Gaza, or from Hamas. They're the ones telling us. And they're also, at the same time, denying that they came into Israel and killed anybody. I'm not making that up. The head of Hamas is publicly denying that they did anything wrong. And they're the ones telling us what's happening in Gaza. So maybe they're telling the truth. Maybe they're not. I don't know. But I'm not going to just assume it's true because somebody in charge said so. Uh, we, we've just got to, be, we've, we've got to be wise as we consume this media, okay? So, uh, the New Testament, Christ, who's been promised since Genesis 3.15, comes. And everything that the Old Testament told us to anticipate about this Messiah, about this king, this prophet, this priest, everything is true of Christ. He comes and he fulfills those things, and we have the, the narrative of that earthly ministry of Christ in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, and then when Christ ascends into heaven uh, and uh, leaves his spirit, sends his spirit uh, the into the, uh, the, the apostles at Pentecost in Acts, for example, chapter 2, uh, we have the beginnings of what we recognize today as the church, although... uh, we're going to make less of a uh, a bright demarcation between the Old Testament and the New Testament people of God. We'll talk about that more when we get into dispensationalism. Uh, But there is a continuation of all of God's promises. In fact, what from the Old Testament perspective looks like a single event is actually two events. So that some of what God has promised the Messiah would do Christ has done, and some of what God promised the Messiah would do, Christ will do when he comes again. Some of it is unfolding even now progressively. Uh, So uh, Christ is the fulfillment of those promises, and we, the church, uh, are his people. Uh, We uh, we are the, the ongoing people of God in history. And that's really the, what's at question here, right? In the whole series, the whole uh, series of lessons we're going to do here. So that's that's a quick history. Uh, Acts tells the, the the story of that uh, gospel, the good news of what Christ has done, going out into the world through the apostles, churches being established, and the church capital C spreading out through the Roman world at the time, uh, the known world at the time, and uh, and the rest of uh, scripture, apart from Revelation, is uh, is letters from the apostles, Paul in particular, John and Peter, to those Christians in the world, those churches in the world, as they are being established and growing. Uh, and then we have the book of Revelation that, uh, that, that tells us uh, who the church is in the context of what God is doing in the past, the present, and the future. So any questions then before we go on to the next thing? Yeah, why they're called Israel and not Jacob. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that in the next section. Yeah. No, that's all good. So what, uh, what we need to do now is we need to talk about some key words, some, some themes that we see in Scripture because both dispensationalism and covenant theology, which is, is our view, it's the name for our understanding, both of these systems... Uh, recognize these as themes, but they're going to to understand them very, very differently. Uh, And in particular, then, these themes are people and land and king. People and land and king. King and kingdom. Uh, And what we'll do with the the last few minutes we have today is we're going to move through people. First of all, the people of God in the Old Testament are referred to as Israel. Now, Israel can actually refer to half a dozen different things. And we have to be careful when we're reading any specific use of the word Israel in the Old Testament, we have to be careful to pay attention to who it's referring to. Because even in the Old Testament, it does not necessarily always refer to exactly the same thing. So, Uh, And before we look at the different uses, I also want to say this. Israel is one name. God gives other names to his people. uh, And so he will refer to them as Jacob, especially in the prophets. He'll cry out to Jacob. Well, he's not crying out to the historical person. He's crying out to the people, right? They are named according to their father. All 12 tribes of Israel are descended from the man, Jacob. Uh, and we're going to talk about how Jacob's name is changed to Israel in a minute. Sometimes they're referred to as Judah. Sometimes they're referred to as Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is a name that can refer to a literal city. But it can also be, uh, because that, that city is where God's temple is, and it's the center of of their worship, and God is the one who appointed that city as the center of their worship. And his king reigns from Jerusalem. God can use the word Jerusalem and mean his people. That's actually a a figure of speech that we refer to as synecdoche, which is spelled uh, in a very unexpected way. Synecdoche, right? S-Y-N-E-C-D-O-C-H-E, synecdoche. It's where you you use the part to refer to the whole, and it's it's a figure of speech we see used in lots of different languages and cultures, and it's no less used in in the Old Testament and in the New, for that matter. So when we read, particularly in the prophets of Jacob or Jerusalem, Jerusalem Jerusalem's used in the Psalms a lot. Uh, We're not supposed to read that in the Psalms usually, and imagine just that city or even just its citizens. Uh, it's, it's talking about all of God's people. And in fact, it's in the Psalms, right? and it, it, It's one of my favorite Psalms. It's in the Psalms that, uh, that God says, of these other peoples, it will be said, this one was born in Jerusalem. What a weird thing to say. Why take somebody who's not an Israelite And say of them that they were born in Jerusalem when clearly they weren't. What's the point there? It's because Jerusalem in that instance is standing in for. As a figure of speech, it represents the people of God. If you belong to God, you were born in Jerusalem. Not literally physically born in Jerusalem. You are a son, a daughter of Jerusalem. This is where your citizenship is. That's the point, right? So... Um, So you've got different words used to describe the one people of God, Jacob, Judah, Jerusalem. Uh, Even Israel is coupled with other words quite often. It's the people of Israel, the sons of Israel, things like that, right? So what can Israel refer to? Israel can refer to the individual, Jacob. The very first instance of the word Israel being used in Scripture is Genesis chapter 32, Verse twenty-eight, Genesis thirty-two twenty-eight. God says to Jacob, "From now on, your name will be Israel." Now, he says the same thing to him in thirty-five, and from chapter thirty-five on, I'll say almost exclusively, the text refers to him as Israel. It may be exclusively. I didn't. I didn't do an exhaustive check on that, uh, but there's at least a dozen or two dozen even instances of him being referred to as Israel, the man, Jacob, being called Israel. This is is why the people are called Israel, because they are all descended from him. It can refer to the people ethnically and culturally. That is, without sovereignty, without land, even in the midst of slavery, they are identified as a people by the name Israel. Exodus 1-7 is an example of this. In Exodus 1-7, and I'm going to turn real quick and just read this. In Exodus 1-7, as I told you earlier, in the context of the, the narrative of the Old Testament, Exodus 1-7, we, we begin with 1 verse 1, and we've, we've leapt ahead in history hundreds of years from the, the end of the story of the patriarchs, Jacob, the twelve Sons. There are mighty people now in Egypt. These are the names of the sons of Israel, verse 1. When you look down at verse 7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. So already they're identified as a people under the name Israel. They're not only not in the promised land, they're not only not sovereign, they're slaves in a foreign land and they have this identity. So Israel can refer to them as a people, completely apart from the question of land and sovereignty. They're an ethnic, cultural people, Israel. It can refer to this same people identified nationally, and still predominantly ethnically, when they have land and sovereignty. So when you go to First Samuel chapter 13... You'll see an example of this. Now they are in the land, uh, and uh, 1 Samuel 13, verse 1, Saul is king, he's just been made king, so they are in the land, and they are sovereign. Saul lived for one year, and then became king, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel. So now they have a, uh, a national identity. They are a nation in the world uh, with uh, you know, boundaries to their land over which they are sovereign. And they're called Israel. So Israel can refer to them in that way. Uh, it can refer to the Messiah. The Messiah is called Israel in the Old Testament. Look at Isaiah chapter 49. And again, I'm, it's not like these are the only examples, and I found the one place where, where this is done. Uh, all of these are, are just illustrations. They're just showing you uh, examples of where it's done. In uh, Isaiah 49, uh, Isaiah has a series of passages here in this part of the book that we call the Servant Songs where uh, God, through the prophet Isaiah, speaks of his servant. And he speaks of who he is to the servant and who the servant is to him. And he speaks of what the servant will do in the world. And the, the, the servant is Christ. In fact, the most famous servant song in Isaiah is Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is one of the servant songs. And these servant songs are about Christ. So when we come to Isaiah 49 which is, uh, in fact, in my ESV, it says the servant of the Lord. That's the the heading on this chapter. He begins this servant song, and in verse 3, he says, And he said to me, that's Christ speaking, And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now, if you're not aware of the fact that Israel can refer to an individual, you might push back and say, no, he's talking about the, 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 the whole people. He's talking about everybody. But he's not. He's talking about an individual. Uh, and uh, I know there's at least two people out there this morning who can look it up in the Hebrew. I didn't. I wish I had. If you want to look it up in the Hebrew quickly, you, you should. Isaiah 49.3. I assume the numbering is the same in the Hebrew. Uh, I'm curious if you is Singular. I'm almost certain it is. You, singular, are my servant Israel. Anyways, uh, so we've got this example of Israel referring to the Messiah. That's going to be really important in a week or two when we come back to our question of who is Israel. And then finally, it can refer to a people spiritually identified rather than ethnically identified. And this truth really throws... The, the earliest church that's predominantly Jewish in Jerusalem in, in particular really throws them for a loop. They're really going to struggle with this. We read about this in Acts. We read about this in, in Galatians, trying to understand how are the Gentiles included in the, in the promises made to Israel. And I'll say this. Uh, don't overlook the fact in Acts, in Paul's letters, Don't overlook the fact that the question is never Has God made promises, different promises to a different people? We know, we Israel, the Jews, we know God made promises to us. Has He made some promises to somebody else? No, the question is always this Will the Gentiles also receive the promises that were given to us? That's really important really important because we are not we the church and i'm jumping ahead but we the church do not replace israel we the church are the true israel and we're going to see that from from god's word let's look at romans chapter 9 singular. thank you yeah the you is singular in isaiah 49 there he's talking about an individual and of course that's borne out in the history it's not just presbyterians christians have always, regardless of what century you're in or what tradition you belong to in the Reformation, we've always read the servant songs and understood them to be about Christ. And the New Testament itself even points to the servant songs and says that Christ is that servant. So look at Romans 9. I want you to see what Paul does here. And, uh, of course, if, if you've ever wrestled with Calvinism, you've spent lots of time in Romans 9. Uh, if you weren't a Presbyterian when you wrestled, but you knew one, they made sure you spent lots of time in Romans 9, right? Uh, and so, I, I want to pick up in verse 1, but, uh, but the key verse is going to come in verse 6. Paul, in the first uh, eight chapters of Romans, has been laying out the gospel that he preaches. He starts with the bad news, right? He tells them that, that everyone is a sinner, Everyone deserves the judgment and the wrath of God, Jew and Gentile. But then he goes on to describe God's grace and his mercy and salvation and and what he's doing in sanctification. And it comes to this crescendo at the end of chapter 8. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And now Paul's going to, to pause. And he's going to anticipate a question. An objection from his audience. His audience is the church at Rome, and while it includes Jews, it includes a lot of Gentiles. And he's going to anticipate an objection. Paul, you have just made the most astounding promises of the salvation and the faithfulness of God. Nothing you said can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But God said a lot of things like that to the Jews. And he's rejected them. They're all going to hell. So if he didn't keep his promises to them, how can we trust him to keep his promises to us? That's the objection that Paul's going to answer, and he's going to begin answering it by correcting their misunderstanding. He has not rejected his people. But the... The person's objection that he's anticipating have misidentified his people. That's the problem. Listen to what he says. Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israel, Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Do you, do you see what he's done there? And Listen. God's not failed. He did not not keep his promise. He's not breaking his promises to them. That is not what's happening, Paul says. How then does Paul justify God? There's a, a really great book. Um, it's, it's heavy, but it's really good. Uh, it's by John Piper, and it's not his usual Christian hedonism material. This is actually, I can't remember if it's his master's thesis. I think it's his master's thesis. uh, And it's called The Justification of God. And he goes through and unpacks Romans 9. It's really, really good. Listen to what he says. It's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Now, Israel here, in the first instance, refers to Jacob. Not all who are descended from Jacob, whose name was also Israel. Being descended from Jacob doesn't make you Israel, Paul says. I mean, let that sink in. If you've not seen that or heard that before, that is a cannon blast. Just because you are descended from Jacob does not make you Israel. I mean, if that doesn't make you Israel, what in the world makes you Israel? He says, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise. God didn't change directions in the New Testament. The New Testament is the the ongoing, unfolding in history of God's Reclamation of his people. And that people has always included Gentiles. It's not, always, it's not just always anticipated Gentiles. It's always included Gentiles. Matthew 1 and the genealogy of Christ, has we, we often acknowledge that it has women in it, which is unusual uh, for these Old Testament genealogies. But the women are Gentiles. Right? It's Rahab who's not just a woman and not just a Gentile. She's got a lot of other things going on that you would think would exclude her from the the heritage of Christ. Ruth. Ruth is not just a woman. She's not just a Gentile. She's a Moabite about whom God says in the law to the tenth generation they are not allowed into the temple. Gentiles have always had a place in God's people. So Paul's not radically changing the truth. He's drawing out a truth that they've missed or forgotten. You are not a part of the people of God merely because you are genetically descended from Jacob. So we see here that the, the title, Israel, verse 6, it's not as though the word of God is failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. By implication, who does belong to Israel, the children of the promise. And as children of the promise, who are they? They're Israel. That's who belongs to Israel. And it's Jew and it's Gentile. So I, I want you to see this that, oh, we've gone way over. You guys can't let me do that. I'm going to be in so much trouble with the nursery people. Okay. Uh, We're going to end right there then, right? Uh, The the name Israel can mean a lot of different things in Scripture. And we've hit, I think, all of them, but at least most of them. If I've missed one, I'll try and uh, and catch it next week. But these are the ways the name is used. It's important that we understand that as we go into next week uh, an introduction to what systematic theology is, how dispensationalism as a systematic gets it wrong, and why that's important that we recognize that. And then we, we go from that into a different system of theology, covenant theology, and we see how it is that Scripture, using particularly this language of Israel, uh, teaches us about who we are. Let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you for time in your word today. We thank you that you have included even us in Israel, that we are also recipients of the promise. We thank you for this astounding truth and all of the hope that is ours in Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.